Hey everybody. So I'm in my car. I have a about a 40 minute drive. Because I had a show earlier today, I'm feeling a bit talkative. And uh, just inviting anyone to ask me a question. We will keep each other entertained for the next half hour or so. Anyone want to get up and chat for a bit? Some of you who have been early adopters of the Yang Extended Universe as it moves into the audio realm are familiar with the fact that I have a scripted Substack podcast uh, that you are listening here. And I also have what's called a call-in show. Call-in is a kind of online radio show that is conducted from the app Call-in in which I can interact with my audience. I've noticed in the past few sessions that the size of those participating has begun to grow just a little bit, but I hope to have that continue to grow as time passes. The Call-In Show is a venue for unscripted and spontaneous conversation, often with an interviewee, but sometimes with just me. I have been doing some shows while I drive uh, because I like to talk to people on the phone while I drive, and it turns out that I also like to talk to a group of listeners while I drive. So today, Substack Podcast is a cross-promotional event in which some highlights from the last 18 episodes of my call-in show will be aggregated and compiled with some loose thematic logic to it. Uh, I hope you enjoy this because it turns out to be the case, as I have said on Twitter, that some of my best sentences are composed extemporaneously on the fly in the midst of conversation, and you can hear some of those passages collected here. You know, I just noticed there's a, there's a line of people here. So why don't I just go ahead and take some of these calls? Sounds good. Yosarian. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Great. I just want to say um, up front that both of you are some of my uh, favorite thinkers and writers at this particular moment in time, this, this sort of crazy, deranged time in which, you know, living in a very liberal enclave and seeing all these things unfold, you might, you know, I find myself you know, <laughs> wondering aloud every day, am I, am I the crazy one? Do I have some sort of species of autism where none of this, none of this, it seems to make so much sense to everybody else makes any sense to me. But uh, having said that, I mean, sort of a question slash comment is it seems to me, and you guys have been touching on this a lot and I, and in, in trying to discipline my own thinking of it and come up with sort of like the grand unified theory of wokeness, which, you know, you always have to be leery of, of being reductive but it, it just seems to me like is the is the enlightenment sort of having its its reformation moment and so that this this really is categorized as a religion and, and i've read john mcwarder's new book and I, I think it's great but i don't think it goes nearly far enough in delving into this because it's not just along the racial axis obviously it's along all these other identitarian axes and understanding it as a religion i think is a helpful frame I think it is I think it must activate the same parts of the human brain that that engage in in all manner of religious thought and activity. I mean it it 
it's just such an explanatory device. And again, you know, you have to have some skepticism to, towards your own thinking on this. But, you know, it, it def, by definition, this religion is, is tribalized and sectarian, which is exactly what, what wokeness is. And then it does give rise to this, this question of heresy, which you were touching on earlier, Katie, and I think is exactly right why you attract so much more venom than, than other people would. I mean, you attract much more venom from the left than, than a lot of right-wing thinkers do because you're, you're seen as a heretic. Right. And you're right. I don't think apologizing. I don't think I think the only way out for you, Katie, would be honestly <laughs> would be like some some sort of conversion. You would have to yourselves announce a transition. Yeah. Right. Oh, believe that me, I've thought conversion. about it. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to me that, that the, the, the basic tenet of this of this religion along these various axes is and this is why I think the term neo-Marxist gets tossed around is that it is just oppressor and oppressed. Right. And by definition, everything the oppressor does, whether it's white people, men, straight, cisgender, et cetera, is bad. And everything the oppressed do is by definition good, with the one exception of agreeing with the oppressors, which winds up being being the heresy. Mm-hmm. And so when you were talking earlier about how there's this lack of forgiveness towards you in compared to other, you know, people who have transgressed, I think that's absolutely right. It's because they're, they're giving an outlet to heresy. They're in potentially infecting the flock with heretical thoughts, exposing mm-hmm. the flock to heretical thoughts. And that, that's the ultimate crime. So I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. I, I think McWhorter has scratched the surface, and I think there's, there's a potentially enormous work to be done in, in exploring this from the, the, both the history of religion and the, the human psychology of religion. You know, we're, we're in a... We're in it right now. And I think like it's very we're, what we're trying to do is describe the world as we as it's happening right now, which is really hard to do. So I don't think we're going to be able to have this sort of um, comprehensive or even a really clear view of what's of what is happening in this moment until after it's over. I, I, you know, I think that there is a group psychological process that is adjacent to religion that has certain aspects of uh, dogma and, and and tribalism that are constitutive of religion, and but but I think most of all, you know, what I call successor ideology is really the there is an institutionalized class of a certain kind of liberal arts college graduate who is involved in an entrepreneurial project of. Um, embedding themselves within institutions on the basis of claims of marginalization and oppression and of the basis of an expertise that they claim to have in the um, in the management of a series of problems that they have first had to sell the world on their existence. Um, and, and so that was done through, you know, the creation of uh, a whole system um, of of, um, of of areas where intervention of professionals, consultants, you know, would be necessary, and and there was a there there was a process of a manufacture of a of a whole vision of the world as a matrix of oppression of the of the white over the black, the straight over the gay, the cis over the trans, and then elaborating the idea that. All of these different forms of oppression are actually one, and and ultimately find their unity in, in in whiteness, which is you know it's a term that is used to refer to the totality of the socialization we get within this society, and 
you know, this first, of course, was, a, was an academic cottage industry because it was very productive of, uh, of discourse and of, you know, sort of a certain kinds, a certain way of uh, doing an attention catching, you know, review of, of Star Wars at Salon.com, pointing out the, the white supremacist uh, legacies and, you know, uh, you know, the stories of the Jedi warriors and so on and so forth. And, and, and but was what was first productive of discourse um, then becomes productive of series of interventions to end, you know, what is called, you know, violence and oppression. And, 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 and all of this involved kind of acts of uh, verbal inflation um, to take uh, to take, you know, uh, any form of exclusion uh, as a kind of violence and uh, constant entrepreneurial activity to uh, identify uh, new axes of oppression. So, you know, you know we're all very familiar with, with, with uh, race and gender um, and, and with um, and gender identity. Uh, but beyond that, we have a bunch of moral entrepreneurs, all of whom have an interest in, um, you know, fat phobia, uh, anthropocentrism. We have the kind of, uh, and that, that is itself a kind of, moral entrepreneurial activity that sort of um, a combination of activists and academics are involved in and then they need to generate sinecures and consultancies for themselves so it, it's a very kind of capitalist but also institutional bureaucratic process that has that that involves the specific interests of uh, a particular set of knowledge worker within our culture industry whose job is is to mediate conflict but 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 in order to mediate the conflict they have to manufacture the conflict in the first place by articulating a distinction between the cisgendered and the transgendered um, that you know to turn 99.95% of the population into a class of oppressors uh, right and and if you can do it if you can, if you can get people to say that the trans woman is a woman, and if you can get people to say the person who denies that the trans woman is a woman is a is a monster and oppressor who has to be um, who has to be silenced or worse, um, in order to end this oppression that has been battened upon us for all of history by the by the distinction of the world into male and female, which is actually culturally mediated and socially constructed and generated by, you know, white supremacists, capitalists, heteropatriarchy, right? Uh, and then imposed upon the rest of the world through colonial adventures, right? Like this whole thing that I just rattled off here, which, um, you know, uh, you have people busily making careers within academia, sort of providing, you know, sort of parsing uh, bits and pieces of historical knowledge in order to generate a new body of knowledge that tells us, in fact, that is the case that like the male-female binary was in, you know, invented by Western colonialists uh, and put across the world. Like that itself is a form of discursive entrepreneurialism that gets people jobs, that gets people journal articles, and that you know. And then there's an interest in the advertising industries and in the journalism industries in exposing us to you know moral novelties of various kinds, which then in turn speaks to a particular constituencies among legal elites within the Democratic Party who find themselves ensconced within uh, you know, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, where they can then issue legal edicts and mandates taking the new manufactured uh, 
formulations of human identity. So, so there's a kind of quasi-religious aspect to it, but there is also a kind of people, uh, you know, uh, people manipulating the uh, the institutions and the practices of meaning production in our society for the purpose of creating churn for creating the appearance of progress amidst a status quo that remains largely unchanged. So all of these dimensions are what go, go into, you know, what I call successor ideology, uh, what, what is more generally called wokeness. Um, and, and it is in a way, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Kitty would agree with this, like the LGBT, not the community, but the movement is in a sense, the established religion of the United States. Right. Like like it, 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 there, there are certain underlying values about your your freedom to define yourself. You know, uh, in Francis Fukuyama's book, Identity, he has a line where he points out that uh, Justice Kennedy, you know, writing in Lawrence versus Texas, wrote the line that like at the heart of liberty is the ability to define your own concept as a human being. And, you know, Fukuyama pointed out sort of rather acidly that Kennedy had written, you know, Nietzsche into the Constitution. And but what comes from that, from that premise, that foundational premise that is now written into the founding documents uh, of the United States is this idea that like we, uh, you know, latent in it is this idea that we create ourselves and that our liberty includes both the ability to define who and what we are and the ability to compel others, right, to participate in, in what we are so that I'm not really free until everybody else valorizes, agrees with, and validates what I say about myself, right? That's like a, that's like a key inflection point, right? In the way these ide- ideologies work. And it, it's kind of transgender ideology that got there first. It got to a point where sort of my liberty is dependent upon other people's participation <laughs> because the socially constructed identity that runs counter to you know, sort of observable physical or biological reality. The, the one is simply a matter of social ascription, which means that a person's identity can be affirmed or annulled through an act of speech. And therefore, their their true self is threatened and endangered through that act of speech. And therefore, in order to preserve that person's integrity of selfhood that, def- that depends upon the social ascription and participation of everybody else, Everybody else's social ascription and participation must be coerced, right? And, and that's how sort of, you know, when I speak of ideological succession, I talk about a turn, a turn where sort of like an idea of, of freedom and self-definition eventually becomes one that is able to conscript the rest of society in the service of. And that, that's what I think ultimately we're in. That's where our society has evolved. That's the kind of philosophical turn we're in the process of undergoing. And it's, you know, it's transgender ideology that got there first. But like, you know, these, these jokes about like, well, I identify the attack column up there and so on. It really, fundamentally, it's the same. It, it, we're going to see this extrapolation of like the, of the human entity into, into something that, um, that's, that is able to declare itself and that others must participate in in order for that person to be deemed as free. It's a whole new conception of what it means to have a right. Uh, anyway, sorry about that. Uh, next person. Hey, can you hear me? 
Yes. Okay, um, it's interesting because I had some kind of an intuitive idea of what I wanted to ask, but then each successive caller completely changed the way that I wanted to get at it. But something you said towards the end of uh, your conversation with the last caller, I guess, was kind of where I wanted to jump in. Um, the idea that social media and, I guess, by proxy, the internet, whatever you want to call it, basically is almost like congruent with like, the entire Anglosphere and all of like, the entire meme plex within it. Because, well, I'm 24 years old and I basically feel like I was like raised on the internet. Like I used Tumblr from 2011 to 2013 and like it was basically my life at the time. And what I find interesting about what I kind of later discovered, later decided, like realized could be named the successor ideology is that it seems completely normal to me. Like I, it, I, when I was a kid, I was, you know, kind of taught what I later realized was kind of like a liberal Whig history. You know, the idea that, that the New Deal was good, you know, the Civil War was about slavery, you know, Jim Crow was bad, Brown was good. Um, MLK was great. None of which I'm saying are necessarily wrong. Just these kind of obvious like, liberal tenets. And then as you get a little further into it and you find out, for instance, that, you know, FDR or like Henry Wallace was a socialist, like MLK's speechwriter was a communist. But you, you, these things are framed as, you know, they're good. So they kind of lead you further along the line of kind of flanking that's normal from the left. And this doesn't seem like radical at all, really. It just seems like an extension of what you already normally know. When I was using Tumblr, I would read like Salon or Slate or The Atlantic you know, kind of congruently with it. And this just seemed totally, I mean, that was, I, we kind of had the sense that those were the people we were flanking from the left and that eventually like, we would take their place. When you said something earlier about journalism, journalism was kind of like the place where it was ideologically captured. Like that was totally true. And it wasn't, it didn't even really seem like a capture. It just seemed like kind of, well, you know, we're going to grow up and then we'll, we'll kind of take what they're kind of like normie liberal takes to, to the next level. And then the, the Bernie movement happened and I think things kind of spouted from there. So I guess, well, actually, here's so so uh, you uh, so so you were fully woke in 2011. I mean, yeah, and you, the entire like, 20 the entire the entire 2010s. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I think 2011 was the year I first was introduced to the concept of transgenderism, and it didn't really make sense to me. But like, there was never a question that I would like try to oppose it. I mean, like, I guess like okay, it's my responsibility to learn what this is. That was I also like had people on Tumblr follow who said that they were like they were other kins and that they were snakes. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, bro, I guess you're a snake. Like, I'm, I don't know. I have, I, there's no, there's no, I kind of sensed there was no ideological. Uh, People were making it up, there, but it would become know, but, real no, as soon as they. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't get anything out of being like, no, bro, you're not a snake. Like, well, I mean, you know, and so I didn't necessarily believe it, but well, the snake thing was too far. And actually, I remember people at the time saying like, bro, the snake thing is like making the trans thing seem stupid. So even then there was like some, <laughs> so, there was some self-awareness. That's why we don't have other kins, you know, Supreme Court cases. But um, the point being that, that that was that kind of as the 2010s unfurled, I mean, it didn't I never felt like until I realized that it was completely asinine that any of this was not was was <laughs> was wrong. Because some people will say that and like, this is a radical. It's just like, you know, being a good person or whatever. And it seems completely asinine when you get outside of it. I know we're kind of rambling, but kind of my question is the reason that all of this seemed normal to me is because I was completely inside of this, not even like ecosphere ideologically, but I was within the space of the Internet where abstract things are real and or like the real is fake and then the fake is real and you kind of lose the distinction between the two of them so i guess what my question is is wouldn't anything that kind of comes after this after the successor ideology also because of the technological advance of the technological like space that exists in, wouldn't it also have to be something that was kind of like native to the internet so yeah i mean that's interesting right there was just this spontaneous co-creation that was that was that had certain nodes in it that were, but it wasn't, but it was kind of leaderless, right? Mm -hmm. and yet, absolutely, absolutely. And people had the ability to coalesce around 
what, whatever was presented. And so as soon as it was presented to you, uh, you know, trans identity, you know, it was, it was totally unquestioning that you would you would progress to it. So you remember you remember having that sense of destiny and and and, and like and like simply knowing, you know, that that, that the, the discourse that was happening here would would become the discourse in, in all of these legacy publications. And that turned out to be right. Yeah, and like, but even Destiny kind of frames it as like I didn't even it did see as if it was kind of like a, a grand project. It just seemed like the normal turnings of you know this is what's going to come next. But in a totally banal way that kind of uh, I think highlights how it when you are a true believer, like you really are a true believer. Like you know, it, it, it would be like saying to someone, "Do you really believe Jesus is going to come back?" They wouldn't be like, "Oh yeah." They they would be like, "Well, duh, yeah." You know, Does right. that, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't try to get outside of a channel. They'd just be like, I mean, what are you? I mean, they would, it would be insulting, really, to kind of, to, to kind of participate, try to analyze that. Did you participate in holding people accountable who had shitty views and so on like that? No, like, is that thing, how you I wasn't really, no, I, w- I wasn't really, when I was on Tumblr, I was like on like film Tumblr. So I actually was part of like the film fandom. But like, it was adjacent to the people who were like political actors. Or I mean, that was where I learned what the term misandry was. Like, it was all understood that misandry was good. And again, like, you don't really even know what, I mean, you know, we were all virgins, so we didn't really even know what sex was. Like, everybody who I followed on Tumblr at the time, we were all just kind of, like, normal, like, teenagers or, like, slightly older, like, 20. Like, they all became, like, socialists and queer, except for me. Uh-huh. And in the end. You know, and again, so, like, and when I kind of, like, re... When I kind of catch up with them, or not catch up, it's like, see their internet presence, I'm like, oh, that's completely unsurprising. Yeah, it was, it was, it was understood that we would kind of progress to these things, even before we knew that they were things. Like, I didn't know anything about socialism in 2012, but then when I learned about it, I was like, oh... Yeah, I guess there is like this is the left. Ergo, like I've got to. I mean, because my parents were Democrats, I was left-wing Democrat. And I guess there is an ideological bench there to where, if my parents were Republicans, obviously I wouldn't have thought this was normal at all. But it wasn't just the ideology; it was really like being on the internet. What what converted you away from it? I don't know. Just the cognitive dissonance of it all came became too too strong. It was it was actually like I mean I don't really want to make this I don't want to kind of make this a flashpoint, but just, it was like kind of confronting the cognitive dissonance I had about like the metaphysical trappings of transgenderism. Mm-hmm. I remember going to like radical right. feminist blogs, like kind of almost like cover. Like I felt like it was, it, it was like I felt like shameful. Like I mean, I was like cheating or something. Like if you were like a cheating <laughs> on your partner. Yeah, this was May 2019. So then I mean, I remember reading those and then kind of encountering other websites that had me, that eventually led me to challenge other views that like I'd never even really, I never even thought that they were beliefs that I had. They were just kind of like truths about the world. And then I kind of got outside of them. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, but so and that, you... that that was all mediated, that was all mediated through the internet, though. It's not like you know people would always say, "Oh, once these people get into the real world, they'll be challenged." That's not true, obviously. I mean, like when I went into the real world, like everything that I thought was, you know, catered to. It was actually ironic on the internet itself through kind of my own um, research, let's say, that I ended up getting out of that. So I do think that like whatever comes next would have to be born out of the internet. I think that's well... why because it has nothing to do with I me. Mean, as you said, I mean, they're obviously like it's not really about either that captures solely but like as sean alluded to like material reasons why this proliferates and might end up not ending but i just think that like whatever replaces it as a, a, a secular belief system mm. it would have to i mean be like something that to say the zoomers encounter through tiktok or something like that and i don't know what it is but i do think that it would have to be a reaction to it as opposed to just kind of like an apolitical stepping back although you could frame that as a reaction i don't know do you, do you think that you're unique in in, in preserving the ability to like question and to you know want to pursue your cognitive dissonance and look for uh other reasons are you unusual and unique in that or do you think that like other people who shared in that same sense of destiny to some degree still have that i couldn't i really i couldn't couldn't say because i mean i i didn't 
I felt like you wouldn't have thought I had that ability until I until I unlocked it. Do you know what I mean? Like I was <laughs> right. I was like so I do think that people have the ability because like I said I was really I mean I was I would I I did a lot of cringe things between the years of twenty <laughs> but during the twenty tens that I wish that I didn't do. But I don't I mean so I think that if people if, if anybody does have the ability to allow themselves to, you know, kind of realize the absurdity of, of, of that line of thinking. I mean less so if there's you know if their paycheck depends on it obviously but um no i don't i don't think i'm i mean i don't think i'm unique in except i would think more that i'm there aren't really that many true believers in the first place and, and have you found have you found that you're isolated or that, that you are that you still are able to like you differ and operate socially and so on i mean i could i practice uh i can practice catman i could practice the, you know the art of dissembling or hiding my beliefs <laughs> no I'm right no, no um, you're uh your I think bio, I said that right? to Winston DMs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're the guy I mean, with the bio. What does your yeah, bio I mean, say again? Oh, uh, uh, let me see. Uh, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Tehonics, <laughs> he, him. I added the height because, like, I was doing like, like a bit. five four. I'm not. I'm not really five four. I promise. And then like some fake college stuff. You know. So if you looked at that, you wouldn't see. You would think, oh, this this guy's. I don't know. But, but you're totally um, you're totally fluent in the language, right? And, and, yes, exactly. And... I haven't forgotten. I probably I'm still more fluent than most people who think that they're fluent, honestly. <laughs> um. No, I mean, you're, you know, your question, I think, I think maybe Kat has something to say to it. And, you know, maybe I'll yeah, I, I, want, I definitely want to hear her take. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. It's going to come from the internet. What I think is important, which I think everyone knows but often forgets, is that every movement that comes from the internet functions the same way. So one of my favorite examples of this is like the dissident right online, which is like a relatively small group of people functions mechanically like exactly the same way as wokeness but you just swap out the terms they're just like they're just like straightforwardly racist instead of like covertly racist and i think it's just there's something about digital communication that creates these hierarchies these power structures this kind of this weird competition that you see in like the 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 woke the woke structure um so i think you're right it's like whatever people are immersed in that's going to be the next thing and the 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 thing you have to bet on is like, well, what's the next ideology that most young people seem to hold that seems ridiculous now that's going to be the next class of like zeitgeist makers, whether that's internet personalities. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because, well, after I guess the woke period ended, I did kind of like uh, the analogy I use is like that, I was like, that was like I was addicted to heroin and then I kind of switched over to the distant right and that was my methadone and now I'm clean. <laughs> I'm clean from my dog. It's like I'm fluent, in, I'm fluent in that argument too and I guess I still kind of, you know, follow a lot of people from that scene. Um, and I think actually that, that that's an interesting point because um, uh, that is, it is kind of, the distant right dysfunction I think is kind of like the Washington generals to the uh <laughs> The woke Harlem Globetrotters. So it's almost like I, I liked what you said about how like Zoomer apoliticism is almost like the the most you know almost like hopeful movement we have because like ultimately like these these like reactionaries. I mean like they ultimately like, how could a reactionary really exist without you know a left to oppose kind of like ascendant. You know what I mean? Like any time where you know there was a reactionary movement, there was a reactionary currents in American life. They they did come you know a, like the Reagan Revolution came after you know, like the seventies and the sixties. Um, so I don't know how like it would be ascendant unless wokeness was kind of still there to, to parlay to, to parlay it um okay so yeah I, I do i do hope for that um yeah kind of both go away <laughs> where they both go away and we can all just be chill well so you know if you, you listen to the 
music from Big Pink by the band, and that captures the sensibility of like when hippies went back to the land and they they retreated from their millenarian political dream. And there's the kind there's this kind of weariness, right, uh, to that moment, and and they pursued a kind of uh, like you know rustic pastoral vision of the American past, and uh, and then kind of withdrew, right, from political contestation, and uh, and so maybe you know this this kind of apoliticism, Zoomer apoliticism that we're seeing is a is a version of that. Uh, thanks a lot. That was interesting. And I hope to remain in dialogue with you. And uh, we'll go on Absolutely. to. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, yeah. I was going to ask what your thoughts were on generally the future of free speech in the U.S. in relation to uh, all the recent fighting over the biggest digital platform we have for sharing ideas um yes the uh elon musk so yes. uh, how do you see that playing out and and i think even more more specific after that is how do you see a path forward for let's say the less popular viewpoints um ever having a platform to communicate and and have a say basically well, you know, I think call-in was designed by those who wanted uh, to, to, to have a place. And, of course, I wouldn't say that they're, they're less popular, right? They, they, are, they, they may be, in fact, more popular. You just have to consider the fact that, um, you know, a person generally perceived to be, and I think not wrongly, to be a kind of outcast from the right-thinking media consensus in Joe Rogan, you know, has something like 11 to 12 times the viewership of the, of the CNN anchors or the, uh, the network news broadcasts. So we have this funny thing where, you know, 65% of the country, something around that consistently says they don't trust the mainstream media. So we have this rump of a 35% that nonetheless encompasses all of the great and the good of American society and those who are able to constitute themselves as the public that matters. And censorship has a lot to do with it. You know, the sort of overt and explicit power, you know, maintained by the platforms who together operate in concert with one another and who constitute you know, my, you know, the term I have for it, the vertically integrated messaging apparatus. So today, I don't know, you may have seen Mark Andreessen tweeted some things that I think are consistent with my own perception, which is that, um, you know, the censorship is going to ramp up and it's going to be pervasive. It's going to be increasingly brazen and it's going to commandeer new territory, including your Google Drives, your ostensibly, you know, your Dropbox, your ostensibly private, right, uh, individually owned digital spaces. So I take a, uh, I take a maximally pessimistic view, but then we have this Musk thing. Uh, I just saw that Vanguard now owns a larger stake than Musk, and so you know, we, we're led to understand then that the, the vertically integrated messaging apparatus 
encompasses BlackRock and Vanguard and, and, and the entities that sit at the commanding heights of the global economy and of American capitalism. So there is this amazing process of mutual co-optation between the woke, the successor ideology, and corporations that were able to confer onto themselves the power of moral injunction, which of course any, <laughs> any corporation would like that, to have one's consumer choices, right, come to be coterminous with, uh, you know, come to be coterminous with a moral imperative. And it was a serendipitous process. It was not a conspiratorial one. It involved the freak out over Trump and the seeding of a, of a narrative of resurgent white supremacy. All of these things colluding with one another where there was a reason for Max Boot, right, and Bill Crystal to, um, for expedient reasons, adopt the ideas that would be instrumentalizable and weaponizable within the you know the domestic political and of course now we're now we're confronting the fact that this coalescence around these ideas is very unpopular the democrats and the, and the great and the good who are aligned with them the hundreds of ceos who have uh you know issued statements in opposition to a piece of legislation that attempts to prevent <laughs> Right, the the social transition without parental notice or consent of young children in Florida, right? The media right. has colluded in order to portray this as uh, as hate and harassment, and it's Disney, it's the companies that sit atop the commanding heights of the global economy that have all been taken in by this narrative. And then there are a handful of places like Substack and. Colin. Colin is not large enough to be on anybody's radar, so there there have not been pieces by Taylor Lorenz smoking out the unfettered speech happening on this platform. So there, there are countervailing forces that are attempting to preserve our ability to encounter reason and reality on the areas where reason and reality have been declared, uh, you know, have, have been declared to be out of bounds. So all anyone has, in addition to reason and reality, is the robust supermajority of the American public, <laughs> right, that, that, that does not trust this vertically integrated messaging apparatus, uh, and is right not to trust it. And, and then one has, you know, sort of a handful of contrarian figures that happens to include the world's wealthiest man. <laughs> the world's most beloved children's author, the world's number one podcaster, the, the world's number one comedian, all figures who in various ways have very different walks of life, very different ideological views, but in different ways have found themselves running afoul, right, of the astroturf pseudo-morality, have been condemned as such, have the entirety of the apparatus doing all they can, to bring them to ruin still has not been able to succeed in that because in addition to reason and reality, you know, on, on the side of this handful of popular, beloved, extraordinarily wealthy, preferred by most of the public, and yet at the same time, right, like 
hated, hunted pariahs, <laughs> right? According to, you know, according to those who are in a position and still have the power to define, right? Like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable through some kind of, you know, legacy power that still inheres in them despite the fact that a supermajority of the public, right? Like doesn't trust them reflexively and is right not to trust them. That's the situation that we face. And it's going to get, especially as we head to the midterms, and especially if, you know, as all the polls suggest, the political party that has managed to monopolize, you know, uh, an astroturf suit of morality um, is going to take us shellacking. And then we're going to be two years away from, potentially, the, the, the return of the, of the man who tried to break American democracy. So... The, you know, the, the imperative to crack down that already made itself known. Everybody put themselves on the record explicitly saying that a restoration of free speech was a danger to freedom and democracy with zero self-awareness, <laughs> with total obliviousness, with uh, no shame about, um, you know, the, the, the paradox and the contradiction that no one feared, you know, sort of engaging in. And that, in fact, people felt enormous amount of defiant pride in affiliating themselves with. Uh, you know, they've, let, they've really let themselves be known. I, I do not have more than a 50-50 confidence that Musk is going to be able to prevail. <laughs> Even the world's richest man, right, uh, is not that rich compared to Vanguard and to BlackRock. And so, so you know, he, he's a kind of... Samson figure, right? Alone against the conjoined you know, forces of border to allow myself to mix my illusions. But it'll be interesting. I, I am inclined to be defeatist. I think the, the, the term is black-filled in general. And at the, at the very minimum, I think that you know, when Mark Andreessen tweets out that it's only going to get more intense more explicit, more overt in the way they go about it. You know, I think he's saying that based upon very specific knowledge of uh, how the keepers of the vertically integrated messaging apparatus think. And I think that all you have to do, in addition to seeing all of the explicit statements to this effect that were made over the past few days, is observe the record of their behavior over the last couple of years to, to know what their intentions are and look ahead to the future, one of potential political defeat under democracy. Because of course what happened was a combination of free speech and democracy produced what they regarded as a catastrophic outcome and one that couldn't be allowed to be repeated. And we're headed now potentially to a restoration of that outcome by a former president who says that he regrets not having marched on the Capitol along with those who did. So in fact, <laughs> there actually is something to worry about and, I'm, uh, and, and, and there potentially is an existential danger. But of course the danger exists in no small part as a result of the authoritarian overreach to which this group of you know, formerly impartial professionals and keepers of the consensus who persuaded themselves that in the interest of moral clarity it was necessary for them to, uh, to abandon the posture of neutrality.
And now we see what results from this embrace of moral clarity. In fact, a rapid delegitimization of their own authority, an intensification of their power to punish that, that is self-perpetuating in the sense that the more they resort to these overt means of coercion, the less people trust in them, which then requires further exertion of their coercive powers until they're totally maxed out. And that's, uh, we are now heading to a point where both their authority has been tapped out, where no one who doesn't directly as an office seeker or office holder rely on their patronage, and there's tens of millions of Americans who rely on their patronage, um, actually trust them. Um, but where their disciplinary power and their grip and their coercive grip over those who rely upon their patronage is so much stronger than it has ever been. And that, that dialectic of like intensifying repression and leaking legitimacy where just like total coercion is going to be something that they attempt, even as the sliver of the public that they have the grip on becomes smaller and smaller. And yet, so long as they have the federal government and the federal bureaucracy, and so long as they have Vanguard and Disney and BlackRock, um, you know, God knows what anyone can do about it. Even the world's richest man. So it's a, it's a fascinating conjuncture that we're, that we're facing. I tend to think that Musk is going to be thwarted. I also worry that he wins... And then the place gets flooded, you know, re-flooded with Nazis, uh, you know, Nazi trolls. And, I, and, and you know, that's, that's not going to be a good outcome either because it was the presence of about a thousand. And there was a study by the ADL that found it was about a thousand, right, like mostly fucking teenagers, right, who totally radicalized the entire media class just by trolling them. And I don't think that that was productive. I didn't take any glee in it. You know, I found it very ugly and unpleasant when it was there. And I think, like, one should be able to keep them off. The question, though, then becomes, you know, what else counts? And, you know, we're now at the point where, to make the statement, men are not women, <laughs> you know, it is to be declared a Nazi who is unworthy to speak by the keepers of the fucking platform, right? So you have to, like, bring those keepers of the platform to heel, but you also have to not unleash thousand neo-Nazi trolls to further radicalize, right, and produce, like, an endless spiral of escalation that we're still on that could ultimately tear the country apart. When, in fact... None of it is real. Like, all of it is just a phantasm. Like, America remains a place that non-white immigrants want to stream into because it's a land of opportunity. All of these things are still true. And, uh, and, and the kayfabe and the, you know, the sliver of personality disordered and deranged people of various ideologies that ended up breaking our social compacts you know, on these platforms, 
you know, it's not really real. And it's the reason why throughout the midst of the Trump years, the low-wage workers saw their incomes rise to a degree that, that has not happened in decades, where the black, Hispanic, and Asian uh, employment rates reached record lows. All of the things that he would boast of, um, you know, and that he had... He was not the decisive figure in producing these outcomes that he took credit for. But what it meant was that the underlying country is still a healthy and sound place. It's just these fucking elites that, out of, that are out of their minds and that have a kind of, uh, you know, structural incentive to continue to be out of their minds. Um, anyway, I don't know. I just enjoy my life. This is the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings and where you can subscribe personally to enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com.